This is the Nietzsche Podcast. The political history of the Hellenic world is in some sense a history of a series of revolutions that completely changed the social fabric and the moral fabric of ancient Greek society. Today, we're going to talk about an ancient Greek who lived through a tumultuous uh, time during that period of revolutions, the 6th and 5th centuries BC, that is Theogenes of Megara. And our main source for discussing this individual is going to be Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche wrote his dissertation at Schulpforta on the topic of Theogenes of Megara, and obviously at this time in his life he was pursuing a career in classical philology, and so this dissertation is a philological work rather than a philosophical one. In this work, the issues of interest to Nietzsche are the task of constructing a timeline of Theogenes's life and determining where his fragmentary poems belong on that timeline, because, uh, after all, there is some question as to when his poems were written, or even which ones were came from Theogenes's own hand and which were added later or appended to his work. Nietzsche draws on the work of past philologists to answer these questions, and he sometimes agrees and sometimes disagrees with their conclusions, but overall, Nietzsche's project is to wage war against the ubiquitous idea that Theogenes was a gnomic poet, meaning a poet whose work was intended as a series of ethical maxims. Poetic gnomes is the somewhat archaic term, but it means short, compact verses meant to be used as moral teachings. Uh, Theogenes of Megara had long been regarded this way as a teacher of ethics through poetry, even within the ancient world. Authors out of antiquity describe Theogenes as, you know, a strict moralist and craft this image of him that sort of accords with that picture. And this was influenced by the fact that in school, in the ancient world, men of learning were brought up to learn many of the verses of the Theogenidea by heart. And therefore, as his work was presented as moral teachings and used for the purposes of imprinting a moral teaching, uh, which is something Nietzsche argues that Theogenes himself never intended, this picture emerged of him in the historical record that is, according to Nietzsche, completely false and misrepresented not only who he was, but what the nature of his work was. Nietzsche argues rather convincingly that a moral instruction in the narrow sense of morality that we typically mean by that word today could not have been farther from the mind of Theogenes when he wrote his poems. They were not intended to be moral teachings, and in order to portray them as such, interpreters of all ages had to ignore, for example, Theogenes's drinking songs and convivial poems, poems which celebrate the joys of youth and the pleasure of leisure, the, the pleasure afforded by a noble life. These are not usually topics we'd associate with a strict moralist, and so these particular lines of the Theogenidea tended to be conveniently forgotten. But what Nietzsche shows in his essay is that, in fact, the inclusion of these topics within his poems make perfect sense if we instead understand the true nature of Theogenes' poetry, and that he wrote poetry as most poets do, to express his inner feelings and passions, that he wrote poetry throughout his life, from when he was a young man, through his time of exile from his home city of Megara, and later when he was in old age. His poems 
express a variety of feelings, dreams, regrets, and so on. And finally, Nietzsche argues that the content of his poems can indicate to us a sort of story of Theogenes's life, in which he is born as a wealthy noble in Megara. He faced a period of democratic revolutions there in which his family was exiled, along with the other members of the aristocracy who opposed the popular party. He spent time in other city-states away from his homeland, where he grew to nurture a hatred for the plebeians and the democratic movements generally. And finally, he returned to Megara after the aristocrats overthrew the new government in a war of you know, reaction. But the city would, of course, never be the same again. That's the story of Theogenes's life, as Nietzsche tells it. And in his view, it's the key to understanding his poems. And so we see from the beginning how in his very project, we get the broad strokes of Nietzsche's project in philosophy, albeit dating from a pre-philosophical era of his work. Nietzsche's eternally at war with moral interpretations of eras, figures, or movements in history. He sees a figure like Theogenes not as a Socratic instructor of virtue through philosophical teaching, right, but as a figure who lives, who expresses his passions, who sometimes expresses things which we might consider to be less than admirable, um, especially by our modern moral standards, and who's a representative of his social class, right? He's the representative of the aristocratic caste, and he's an advocate for the order of rank, the pathos of distance, all these aristocratic precepts that Nietzsche um, ultimately um, finds influence for his political philosophy in. And so Nietzsche, rather than seeing Theogenes in part of this moralist tradition, right, where we might include, you know, he, you, we could say he's like sort of proto-Socratic, right? Um, we would include the Socratic tradition. And uh, of course, over time, this intertwines or morphs into sort of the Christian world interpretation, right? Instead, Nietzsche sees Theogenes standing for the Dionysian, or actually more properly, the Apollinian, or perhaps both, right? The Dionysian in sort of the fuller sense of the term Dionysian that Nietzsche would later use in his, you know, um, sort of final works, like around the time of Twilight of Idols. But around this time in his life, or actually even a little bit after this time, because this is very, very early Nietzsche, this is Nietzsche's, um, you know, dissertation as a very young man. But uh, that, the term Apollinian, the way he uses it in Birth of Tragedy, both of those terms, or whichever one you want to pick, they elucidate something about Theogenes. They throw light onto different aspects of his character as Nietzsche interprets him. It's, he's a man of the Greek master morality, right? This is a man he feels he has the good within him, and that that which is good f sort of flows out of who the essence of who he is, right? And men who are bonded together by the same common feeling, right, of their aristocratic power. These are the people who would call themselves, as Nietzsche would later write, the beautiful, the good, the happy. Um, Theogenes doesn't feel that he has to justify or give reasons for his nobility. He feels, in fact, that the democratic tendency in Greek society is nothing but a threat to all that is good and sacred. And so, you know, it's someone who represents the Greek pre-Christian morality par excellence, really, who acknowledges the necessary inequality that is always part of life and proudly stands in favor of it, right? Theogenes affirms the superstition and the ritual that gave the aristocrats their power. 
He's an advocate for the Greek enchantment of the world given by the old religion and the social system which was established by this. In Theogenes' lifetime, he saw this revolution, a political revolution, yes, but also a revolution in morality, which threatened and ultimately destroyed that social system. Since, as we mentioned, even when the aristocrats returned to Megara, uh, society had been reshaped by various things, by the wealth, uh, right, that had allowed the plebeians to sort of advance into a, a, a level of financial power that they'd never had before. And, you know, the dissolution of these clear boundaries that it had once existed between the classes, all that is mostly gone at least as Theogenes sees it. And so he became rather bitter, uh, hateful even. And Nietzsche interprets Theogenes' work as sort of a cultural war against democracy and egalitarianism that emerges within Theogenes' poems, many of which are written for Cyrnus, a younger man whom Theogenes took on as his mentor and hoped that uh, one day would take you know, Theogenes' teachings and sort of lead a movement against the democratic values. Uh, that was Theogenes' hope for the young Cyrnus. Uh, but Nietzsche is careful to uh, you know, emphasize that this is not a course of moral instruction to make him a, a better member of the herd, but a sort of exaltation to fight against the underlying ideas, the underlying values of moralism itself. Speaking here of morality as anti-life, you know, morality as condemnation of things, Things such as the natural inequality of life, the condemnation of that, the inclina- inclination to wish to correct life, to bring it into alignment with all of our oughts, right? This kind of moralistic thinking is quite the opposite of the Theogenidean teaching, according to Nietzsche. And so in the very beginning of Nietzsche's canon, we already find the basis of Nietzsche's later ideas in terms of his political orientation. Um, Before we go further, I want to stress something which may not be entirely obvious to modern audiences, but which would have been understood by people of antiquity as indicated by the term poet. Theogenes' elegies were meant to be recited to music, to the rhythm of a flute. Theogenes was not so much a poet in the modern sense of the term, but a lyricist, a musical um, composer, right? Poetry in those days always had a musical element, which is relatively unknown with modern poetic recitation, right? You think of a poetry reading, there's no music accompanying it. That would even seem weird to most people. Now, obviously, lyricism in modern music is sort of, you could say that's a form of musical poetry that exists today, since most of our popular music is lyrical. But even as different as our modern music is from what the Greeks had, a, a musical performance is probably closer to what a Theogenidean elegy was like rather than a poetry reading, right? His poems are supposed to be musical. They're meant to be performed at the symposia. Okay, so first, let's sort of look at, uh, you know, a rough sketch of Theogenes' life. Our source for this and for the whole episode will be Nietzsche's dissertation, Uh, And in addition to this, a fragment from 1864 entitled Studies in Theogenes, which is only a few pages long, but it seems to be a great resource since it provides a good summary of the broad ideas signified by Theogenes and his life and work, Uh, like in contrast with the dissertation, which is, it's like uh, De Theogenidea Megarancia, I believe is what it is, which you can translate as 
on Theogenes of Megara. The dissertation is heavy with primary sources and citations from other philologists, whereas this fragment uh, in the same year that he writes, um, or maybe it was a couple of years later, but it's it, around the same time, it, it's much more sort of the bullet points, right? Uh, and as a final note, before we continue, Nietzsche would have been 20 years old when he graduated Schulpforte, which means this is the work of a very young Nietzsche, more a student than a master, right? Although his meteoric rise to becoming a notable, notable academic uh, was not long after this, right? He was already sort of impressive to his mentors. Uh, we should also note that in order to submit his dissertation, Nietzsche had to translate it into Latin, showing us, of course, the command of the ancient languages that was demanded if one wanted to join the ranks of classical philologists. Nietzsche wrote to his friend Wilhelm Pender, quote, This morning I have begun my work on Theogenes. Five pages are ready. The Latinitas is painful. I have already laughed a few times this morning over many short queries, end quote. Nietzsche translated seven pages by Monday, 16 the next day, 27 the day after, and finished it completely by that Thursday. In retrospect, Nietzsche would say that he found the dissertation, quote, linguistically awkward. And in a letter to Karl von Gersdorf three years later in 1867, he said that he wrote dryly and with a logical corset. In fact, we see a hint of Nietzsche's general disdain for the tendency towards over-specialization in academia and the increasing sort of triviality and procedural aspects of academia. Uh, he writes, quote, For we would not deny that most philologists lack that elevating total view of antiquity because they stand too close to the picture and investigate a patch of paint instead of gazing at the big, bold brushstrokes of the whole painting and what is more, enjoying them, end quote. So in his comments on the dissertation, we have like a paradigmatic Nietzschean attack on the scholars, right? Written even at a time when Nietzsche himself was still very much an academic. But it reminds me of the later words in his untimely meditations, the period of cultural criticism in which this type of critique on academia is made very explicit, right? That the education provided by modern uh, academic institutions is not an education of the whole picture, as he calls it here. It's not taught by those who can actually comprehend the whole picture or even inhabit the perspective of the ancients or take joy in the things that the ancients did. It's an education of technique and specialization and minutiae, an education that never touches real life and its struggles or the deep concerns of values and the competition between values, right, both in the individual and society at large but simply, you know, teaches you how to work away at one little nook, digging in one little shaft, expanding one's mental acuity for the purposes of solving problems within a limited sphere of attention. And so Nietzsche is already something of a rebel in the philology department. He says some things that might lead us to think that Nietzsche was already sort of practicing philology in a more expansive way, and perhaps in an almost philosophical way when he's writing the dissertation. Uh, in a letter to Pinder and Gustav Krug, another friend, this is June of 1864, he says, quote, I am writing a major work on Theogenes by my own choice. I have allowed myself again to be involved in a number of suppositions and fantasies, 
that I intend to complete this work with the right philological grounding and in the most scientific way possible. I have now gained a new point of view concerning the study of this man, and on many respects I judge him differently than the current opinion. I have thoroughly examined the best studies that exist on the topic." End quote. So we can see this balancing act of the two competing values that Nietzsche wishes to entertain um, while you know writing his this major work, as he calls it, which it should be noted, was actually not undertaken by his own choice, as he says. He was assigned the topic. But that fact aside, we can say definitively that he took to the task of presenting a coherent interpretation of the life and work of Theogenes with zeal, right? You know, But there's this ambivalence that we see between the desire to present the work as scientifically as possible with, you know, in line with the scientific analytic approach to philology, sprachphilology, that would have been called, and Nietzsche's desire to entertain suppositions and fantasies, to grasp the broad strokes of the picture, right? To attempt to inhabit the perspective of Theogenes. Um, what might be called in a broad sense, sacphilology, a non-scientific hermeneutical approach to the discipline. Or, if you'd like, Sukumpf's philology, future philology, the portmanteau that Williamowitz Mullendorf applied to Nietzsche's first book, Birth of Tragedy, uh, years later, and he meant it as a sort of insult, right? Wagner, the composer, uh, and Nietzsche's cultural and philosophical mentor, had indicated that his music uh, was a sort of cultural emanation from the future, that he was making music from the future. And so Nietzsche's critics charged that he was practicing a new form of philosophy, uh, philology, excuse me, from the future uh, as well, right? As a sort of dig at Nietzsche for being a Wagnerian, uh, you know, that he was letting his Wagnerianism overtake the scientific commitments demanded by classical philology. But anyway, as we all know, Nietzsche would embrace this aesthetic with the idea that he was writing to philosophers of the future, right? And in some sense, his philological work represents the same spirit of trying to transcend the rigor and the procedure of the scientific demands of the discipline and aim for something which truly speaks to the soul or to the psyche of man. Um, something that educates you in the deep sense that he's looking for. And so Nietzsche, even long after he broke with Wagner and stopped even considering himself a classical philologist, was still... Um, embrace this idea that his thought was a rejection of the present values and always claimed it was a hope for different values to arise in the future. Um, and so Antimo Negri suggests that Nietzsche's philology of the future was first expressed in this essay on Theogenes and this dissertation, and that the spirit behind this project is commensurate with the spirit behind his later philosophical project, that there's a, there's an easy, smooth transition there, right? And we've sort of made that case before, albeit in a different way on the podcast. And so now we'll finally get into the work itself um, and let Nietzsche lead us on in this exploration of the life of Theogenes. Nietzsche writes in the first section of the dissertation, after the introductory outline that he gives, quote, In the city of Megara, as in almost every city of the Dorians, the supreme authority and the administration of rights was controlled by the nobility, who, since ancient times, confined the common inhabitants to living in bordering territories, remote from the capital city, and struck by poverty and ignorance. But gradually, when commerce with the colonies founded in fertile regions flourished, from which riches and luxuries flowed back to the mother city, 
dissensions arose between the Optimates and the Plebeians. Hence it happened that Theagenes, seconded by the masses, whose favor he had attracted, seized public authority using a cunning procedure similar to that of almost all tyrants. End quote. And at the end, he cites Aristotle to back up his accounting of Theagenes' ascent to tyranny. So what we have here, Megara, a city-state of the Dorians. Remember, the most famous city-state of the Dorians is Sparta, and Nietzsche considers the Doric civilization a perpetual outpost of Apollinean culture in Greece. This is what he writes in Birth of Tragedy. Never overwhelmed by the Dionysian art. Um, remember, the Dionysian is the art force that dissolves barriers, right? The Dorians are a rigidly hierarchical people with, you know, regularity of line and form in their art. They're Apollinians, you know, meaning they, they hold above all things the shining Olympian hero of a noble bearing. And Apollo is the god who fires his bow from a distance, signifying in some sense distance and boundaries. You might remember also from what we covered uh, with the ancient city and Fustel de Collonges' work, um, the sacred religious nature of these boundaries between men and these boundaries between lands, right? Again, Nietzsche mentions how the nobility lived within the city and kept the common folk out of it. And of course, that would be the case because the city was founded as a holy site originally and was only for those who shared the common worship, those qualified to be priests, which were only the aristocracy. And then there is a democratic agitation, that there is this disturbance and dissolution of these social differences. But Nietzsche sort of attributes it that to wealth and what the ancients would have called, or what in, they would have said in ancient Rome, luxuria, right? And after this, a tyrant comes in, that's uh, Theagenes. Uh, we actually mentioned him, uh, Coulonge recorded how this was the typical pattern during the revolutions beginning around the 6th century BC. Um, but if you remember, Coulange discusses how Theagenes ambushed the nobility of the city and their herds and, um, you know, killed them and appropriated their wealth, right? Um, you know, but th it's interesting because Nietzsche, you know, Coulange is emphasizing the the changing beliefs of mankind and sort of presents it almost, um, I wouldn't quite say in a Hegelian way, but almost in a, because it's not very dialectical, but uh, like Collange seems to think men's minds were sort of struggling towards a more truthful or a fuller or more accurate picture of the world and that um, the ancient beliefs were sort of absurd and that as our minds like sort of evolved, you might say, we were able to shed those beliefs and new beliefs and social circumstances took hold and new values. Nietzsche also emphasizes the material conditions here, which is interesting. And he's, um, you know, cause he's sort of attributing wealth and luxury as the, the force that destabilized, uh, the Greek city states and the old social order. And we'll see this attitude being very much opposed to wealth and to free trade and the accumulation of property being open to just anyone, right? Uh, for one, it's it's not an uncommon view in the ancient world, but Nietzsche is also right there along with them. He thinks it's a socially disintegrative force and ultimately it will destroy the hierarchy in which the cultures are founded. 
And so Nietzsche establishes the history. We had a ruling aristocracy, and they become dominated by a tyrant, right? The city of Megara eventually expels the tyrant Theagenes, but the popular party that, uh, you know, he drew his support from the, the populares, they remain in power. And as Plutarch writes, quote, Once the Megarians expelled the tyrant Theagenes, they were judicious for some time with respect to the administration of government. Then, when demagogues offered them the nectar of an excessive and immoderate freedom, they became extremely corrupt and began attacking the rich shamelessly and breaking into their houses. The poor claimed a right to feast and drink sumptuously, and if they could not get away with it, they violently and abusively grabbed everything. End quote. So the supposedly democratic government degenerated into what the ancients sometimes called uh, olocracy or oclocracy, uh, mob rule, in which manipulative leaders basically grift large numbers of people for you know their own benefit or else you know simply conspire to use the absolute power of the state purely for personal gain. And the state was rather absolutely powerful during this time. And democracy itself dies by its own hand because this is so socially disruptive to the city life. Nietzsche quotes from Aristotle in uh, his work Politics, Part 5, quote, And in like manner, democracy was abolished in Megara. For the demagogues, to be able to confiscate property, expelled many of the notables, thus creating many fugitives. End quote. Theogenes was one of those fugitives who left the city during this time. He lived in various cities and colonies, sometimes welcomed by the nobility of other lands, who were sympathetic to the plight of the Megarian aristocracy. Theogenes' writing during this time uses a great deal of metaphors involving ships and sea travel because this was the reality of his life. And Nietzsche quite beautifully says that for Theogenes, poetry was the safe port in which his soul, like a wayward ship, could find refuge. Nietzsche examines some of the verses of Theogenes and compares them to the uh, historical record, as we have it from the ancient historians. Um, Theogenes writes of, quote, prophets that come with public disgrace, end quote. He writes that, quote, they seize property by force and order has perished, end quote. Or in verses 41 through 42, he says that his fellow countrymen, quote, are still sensible, but their leaders have changed, end quote, and have made them, quote, fall into deep evil, end quote. This recalls Plutarch's allegation that the democratic leaders, having taken power from Theagenes, were at first judicious, but they were won over by the promises of demagogues. For Theogenes's part, he claims in his poetry not to be disturbed by the relative state of poverty that he now had to endure or the character attacks against him and the other aristocrats from you know the Democratic Party. But in actual fact, he would lament both of these things quite a bit throughout his poetic canon, you know, writing numerous verses against false friends or those who betrayed their friends and speaking of poverty as one of the worst things imaginable. But we should perhaps say that in the following verses, we could interpret his words as representing the idea that it's not strictly the material deprivation of poverty that he finds lamentable. Rather, it's the situation that is unfolding as he finds that his youth is fading, right? 
Theogenes perceives that he now must become a vagrant when he's past the age of 30, rather than being able to remain at his home, you know, at peace in an orderly society, he has to endure exile. So here are lines 1129 through 1132, quote, Heartbreaking poverty does not bother me, or hostile men who speak evil of me, but I am grieved over my beloved youth slipping away and weep at the eminence of a dreadful old age. End quote. Nietzsche's interpretation of this section of lines we find in the preceding paragraph of the dissertation, from where he quotes from these lines. Nietzsche writes, quote, Theogenes undoubtedly was among the exiled aristocrats, since before his exile he fought bitterly against the popular party and its political institutions. He himself recalls that at that time his youth was slipping away and he was haunted by poverty and the insult of slanderers, end quote. In any case, Theogenes seems to have initially pretended to have sympathies with the populists, um, you know, sort of when the democratizing revolution of the city first began. Nietzsche believes that Theogenes strove to ingratiate himself with the people, but that this, this act of his was sort of seen through by the common people very quickly, or by the politicians for the popular party. Nietzsche writes that, quote, he deceived himself, since his adversaries, who perceived that his love of nobility was hardly hidden by an apparently popular spirit, seized his property and put his life in the greatest jeopardy. End quote. Theogenes's verses uh, accordingly read, and this is uh, 831 to 32, quote, By trusting, I lost my possessions, and by distrusting, I kept them but being aware of both makes one bitter, end quote. Um, to quote Nietzsche again of the verses I've just read just now, he says, quote, It seems then that these verses were composed at the beginning of that conflict when, defeated and deprived of the, his property, he left and went into exile, end quote. So during that time, Theogenes visited Sicily, Euboea, uh, Sparta, and Oftentimes, Theogenes and other exiled aristocrats found that they were relatively well-treated because, after all, the Dorian civilization was friendly to oligarchies or aristocracies and relatively unfriendly to the concept of democracy. And so they often wished to um, help the nobility of foreign cities that had been exiled. But Theogenes and his kin were now people without a homeland, right? They were refugees relying on the charity of other aristocrats. Um, or, you know, perhaps they would receive help out of a sort of sacred duty that the other aristocrats felt they had towards them. But you're still depending on the goodwill of others, right? Um, which means you're no longer that uh, independent, uh, self-sufficient, you know, wealthy noble that you once were. Nietzsche writes, and here I quote in an abridged form from the dissertation, quote, Theogenes decided to flee, and at first hesitated at whether he should take his wife Argyris with him, should I understand correctly, and proposed the same to the adolescent Cyrnus, whom he loved with fatherly affection. He lived for a long time in Sicily and was honored with citizenship of Megara Hyblea, 
He himself acknowledges that he tolerated his exile in Sicily moderately well, and if anyone wonders what his condition was, he bids to say in verse 520, well but with difficulty, with difficulty though not well. The misfortune of exile seems diminished, especially by the fact that the aristocrats in exile always endeavored to return to their homeland and regain their former status. It seems that Theogenes left Sicily by ship and arrived in Euboea, an island whose nobles, holders of opulence and luxury, welcomed the exiled in a magnificent and splendid manner. He spent the last part of his exile in Sparta, at the seat of the nobility, where the exiles hoped that they would likely receive help against their hostile fellow citizens. It does not seem credible that these exiles would invade their homeland with their own military force without the help of others, or would vanquish the popular party and regain control of their government. End quote. And so, um, I think to step back here for a minute and consider what we might think of Theogenes, it's very tempting for those of us with modern morality to treat the plight of Theogenes at this point in his life with derision and as something which is only well-deserved by those who might have suffered it, right? That, of course, the material interests of the upper class are not served by class warfare, obviously, and the unequal distribution of property and wealth was now being democratized just as the political power was being democratized. And so, of course, the upper class would oppose this and characterize it as anarchy, dissolution, destruction of all order, and all that sacred. But in reality, perhaps it is simply their reactionary attitude at the loss of their personal material interest to what is in actuality justice, right? From our modern perspective, this is economic justice and social justice, right? But I think what we should remember here is that whether this outlook on the situation, you know, our modern outlook, whether it's wrong or right, we'd be imposing a framework for understanding the situation that's strictly materialist and quite avowedly so. And while I did mention how Nietzsche brings in a sort of material analysis, um, you know, to put it in purely material terms, I mean, that's sort of like the famously Marxist approach to studying history, right? And in purely material terms, we can understand this conflict only as a class struggle between a common folk seeking democratic uh, representation versus an entrenched elite minority who's holding on to power that gives a small number the most wealth and privilege. But if we consider the situation from the lens of culture or from a lens which is not strictly material, that is, if we wish not simply to pass judgment on the past, but to understand why the events unfolded the way they did, to the aristocracies of these cities, the plebeians were not even of the same society as them. Remember in ancient Rome, the reconciliation between the patricians and plebs was drafted along the same lines as a treaty between two warring peoples, and they saw themselves as fundamentally not the same society, right? To the uh, patricians, or in, in Greece, the Eupatrids, um, the plebeians were not, they didn't share a culture, they didn't share a religion, they didn't share a society, the city didn't belong to them. These people didn't have any ancestors, they didn't have any sacred lands, they didn't have a right to demand anything. The aristocrats believed they were the only ones who could properly administer the rights and serve as intercessors with the gods, meaning that without them and without the sacred worship that they maintained, their cities would be ruined and destroyed, quite literally ruined and destroyed, right? 
that the gods would withdraw their protection and visit their wrath upon them. And so democracy to them was not just a change in the political structure, but it was an attack on the world enchantment in which they lived. It was an attack on the values that said what was yours was what was religiously bound to you, right? The land in which your ancestors had been buried and the property which your family had accrued belonged not to any individual, but to a lineage that was divinely protected. And it was protected as such because it lived in service to these familial and domestic divinities. The plebeians were, you know, they were impious. They had no lands. They had no ancestral tombs. And so to the aristocrats of the ancient cities, they were rightfully kept away from all that was sacred within the city. And so the expropriation of property to these aristocrats was a sort of horror that transcends the material interest and enters into the realm of a religious sacrilege of a, you know, really of the most existential variety, right? And meanwhile, perhaps someone like Nietzsche would come in with the retrospective interpretation that the Megarian culture itself was founded upon these religious values, which established that basic inequality and difference between noble and common, and that the destruction of this mental framework for understanding oneself and your place in the world would ultimately, um, th that destruction would have to come with this democratic revolution, that the culture itself would die, and that all that was valuable about the Greeks and the Dorians would be lost, because the state would come into the hands of those for whom material interests are all that matter, right? They have no religion. They don't have these beliefs. So material interests are all that matter, which is, means gain short-term advantage, right? Fulfill the immediate impulses, the kind of perspective that one has when they see themselves not as an individual, but as like the steward of a lineage. Um, that perspective is impossible for the plebeians, right? They don't have responsibilities that go beyond their own lifespan. And so the state is therefore managed in this short-sighted manner. So, I don't know. Whatever we think of this, I think it's just worth fully elucidating where everyone is coming from in this sort of social conflict. But in any case, it seems the nobles eventually did retake the city, as we alluded to earlier, and perhaps with the help of the Spartans. Aristotle records, uh, quote, "...those who returned overcame the people in a battle." And established an oligarchy, end quote. In another section, where Aristotle is discussing who was eligible for voting on public affairs as a citizen, he writes, quote, At Megara, only those who returned from exile and had fought jointly against the popular party were eligible, end quote. And so Theogenes returned to the city of Megara, a much older man where he lived for some time, and he reached the age of 90, according to Nietzsche's assessment. Um, you know, and contrary to popular myth, right? Well, while it was as rare as it is now, and perhaps a good deal rarer, because m many more opportunities for death existed back then, nevertheless, living to the age of 90 was not out that outlandish or unheard of, and it does fit with the dates given. So it's, it is quite possible that Theogenes lived to be that old. But the city was different now, as we've mentioned. It had changed during the time of his exile because once that old religious morality of the aristocracy was gone and the class distinctions were completely blurred by wealth flowing into the plebeian households and being taken out of formerly aristocratic households, and once the institutions of state 
had proven useful in serving, you know, one's personal gain, right? And the state was able to act independently of the divine or the dictates of the divine. Well, the cat's out of the bag at that point, right? Megara is irrevocably changed. As Fustel de Collange argued, once the series of revolutions began to alter the underlying religious assumptions, the social structure that was based upon those assumptions could not survive. Nietzsche writes that Theogenes now saw, quote, plebeian owners enjoying themselves, while honors were granted to men who had previously been banned from government, and furthermore, that noble blood was being defiled by marriages with new men, having voluntarily yielded to the winning faction the right to intermarriage, end quote. Um, so this is a very important point, uh, that we also, I mean, I guess we've tangentially risk discussed so far in the, like this season, uh, but insofar as this is a kind of genetic politics that is somewhat unknown in the modern world, right? When we see racism in the modern world, for example, it's usually people who have ideas about whole ethnicities of people as being fundamentally different or inferior in some way from others. Whereas here Nietzsche sees Theogenes' concern as a mixing not of races, but of classes, of the nobility having been established as being totally different in essence than the lower class by the religious beliefs on which their society was based. Now they're intermingling with rich plebeians, people who have no ancestry. Uh, in the past ages, right, a, a father marrying off his daughter to a plebeian would not only be inconceivable, but, I mean, if he were to entertain the notion at all, he'd probably consider it like cruel. He'd be like handing her over to a barbarian, basically, right? A house with no gods, no divine protection from this cruel world of spirits and forces and deities that surround mankind. She'd be exiled from her family and from her domestic religion, but she'd find no new one to offer her a new identity. And that's why intermarriage between classes was regarded as untenable by these um, ancient societies for so long. But once these revolutions begin in rapid succession, those religious values begin to fall by the race wayside, excuse me, and that happens very, very quickly. And part of it might be that the nobility themselves were perhaps not as noble as Theogenes might have hoped they were. Um, not all of them were willing to endure poverty and privation and may have simply found that, you know, if their class position started to slip a little bit and they were in danger of not enjoying the kind of wealth that they were used to having, um, you know, either by just ill circumstances or by having their wealth expropriated or whatever, marrying a rich plebeian is a perfectly acceptable way, you know, at that point to regain the luxury that you're accustomed to. Um, so Theogenes, therefore, has nothing but contempt for the nobles who didn't stick to the class distinctions as they were originally drawn, the, the people who compromised, right, the weak nobles who gave in to the revolt of the plebs. He hates them almost as much as he does the masses, who he sees in a typical fashion uh, among the ancient Greeks as being, in their very essence, false people, those who do not hold true to their word, right? They don't have any bonds of loyalty or sacred oaths to regulate their behavior. They're untrustworthy and out only for themselves. Theogenes' comments on the falseness of the common people are, in fact, used by Nietzsche in one of the only references to Theogenes in his published philosophical canon in Genealogy of Morality. In fact, we'll, we'll divert to what Nietzsche says in that part of the work very briefly because 
this episode's all about theogenes, so while his dissertation is our main source, it's worth looking at this bit of analysis and how it factors into Nietzsche's entire interpretation of the moral outlook of Greek aristocracies. Theogenes is central to how Nietzsche came to understand that, uh, right? And so this is from Genealogy, Section 5, First Essay. Quote, They, the nobility, call themselves, for instance, the truthful. This is so, above all, of the Greek nobility, whose mouthpiece is the Megarian poet Theogenes. The root of the word coined for this eslos signifies one who is, who possesses reality, who is actual, who is true. Then, with a subjective turn, the true as the truthful. In this phase of conceptual transformation, it becomes a slogan and catchword of the nobility, and passes over entirely into the sense of noble, as distinct from the lying common man, which is what Theogenes takes him to be and how he describes him, until finally, after the decline of the nobility, the word is left to designate nobility of soul and becomes, as it were, ripe and sweet. End quote. So Nietzsche's stand-in in the genealogy to speak for the position of the ancient Greek aristocracy is Theogenes. And that position is that the people who are trustworthy, who were true, who, who truly possessed a being, right? Who truly were, meaning that they had substance, they had action to back up their words. Their words are not simply empty or hollow or meant to mislead, right? Their words actually indicated the substance of who they were. And so being true in the sense of following through on your promises and oaths and obligations, later this gives way to the idea of the nobility of the soul, right? Associated with honesty and trustworthiness in a sort of, as a sort of moral duty, right? But originally, this was seen as a trait of the upper class, something literally inherited, right? Or at best, inculcated by an education into the ranks of the aristocrats, something you know, that grows when you are in an environment that's protected and sort of in the walled off environment of the aristocratic city, separate from the depravity and the untruthfulness of the common people. Because as we remember, the inclination to deception as a survival strategy, as Nietzsche points at or points out in uh, On Truth and Lies in the Extra Moral Sense, Deception is adopted by those who lack the physical force to overcome opposition because they've been denied the ability to wage war with fangs and sharp teeth, as he says. We might therefore consider the lines 27 and 28, where Theogenes says that his own ethical instruction, which he transmitted to Cernus, was simply his own aristocratic upbringing, something inherited as a child, quote, such things as I myself, Cernus, learned from good men while still a child, end quote. Or we might also look conversely at verses 305 through 307 in which Theogenes says, quote, The bad people were not completely bad from childhood, but after befriending other bad men, they have also learned wrongdoing, abusive language, and excess, end quote. And so Theogenes writes in his poetry that doing good to the plebeians, to the bad, common, low-born people, doing anything charitable or kind to them, is, quote, a most useless kindness. It is like sowing the white furrows of the sea, because neither sowing the sea will yield a rich harvest, 
nor by doing good to the bad man, would you receive any good in return, end quote. That last line, nor by doing good to the bad man, you could say commoner. It would be a, um, I mean, the word kakus is used here, which basically means bad person. This is why we always have to clarify the meaning because kakus means literally someone bad, but with the connotations of low or ill birth, of being craven or cowardly, or being common, base, vicious, and so on, right? This is, of course, one of Nietzsche's great etymological assertions in the genealogy of morality, that the term for bad person was one and the same with the term for a lowborn person originally, um, and the same with the term for a good person and noble person, and that in the original sense of these words, the ancient Greeks couldn't even make a conceptual distinction between those two ideas. And so Theogenes writes verses such as lines 437 through 38, where he says, quote, only by teaching, you will never turn a bad man into a good man, end quote. Um, Theogenes takes uh, to heart uh, the, the adage by bias of Prien, that famous quote, most men are bad, and seems to represent this meaning in quite a literal way according to the implications of birth included in the term bad, meaning most men are common, which uh, from a numerical statistical sense, right, actually would, ha- would be a sort of a truism. You know, the good people are the stalwart nobility of the various city estates who maintain the city worship and take up arms and fight for the city when it's in danger. And they traditionally rule, therefore, as a sort of right and privilege of their rank. But that's always a minority of people. And so it's always a minority who deserve that power and freedom. This distinction between the good men meant here as a synonym for the aristocratic class, it it completely pervades the poetry of Theogenes. It's it's perhaps his central focus, his affirmation of the value of the classes of people that had been established by the old social structure. This is what Theogenes and Nietzsche's view wish to manifest in his poetry, a statement of the good of the old aristocratic order and a contempt for its destruction, and especially a contempt for its destroyers, right? And so his verses, they don't always take the form of rage against the popular parties, but might in some cases serve as a reminder of the basis of the old valuations and an attempt to wrest the moral or cultural authority from the zeitgeist and return it to the hands of the nobility. Um, That's what Nietzsche alleges that Theogenes wished he could sort of influence with his verses. Nietzsche writes in section 15 of his dissertation that the nobility, quote, held in the highest esteem the antiquity of lineage and illustrious origin, especially when this origin could be traced back to heroes and to the gods themselves as founders. In contrast, the plebeians who sprang from a useless and pernicious lineage was cloaked in obscurity and his name was not celebrated beyond his lifespan. This is something Theogenes expresses bitterly in a couplet, quote, Some vehemently blame the good men, others praise them, but there is no memory of the bad men at all, end quote. Um, And so all this, you know, that term, bad man, again, meaning lowborn, it begins to take on 
tinge of something transcending mere birth insofar as theogenous almost implicitly begins to associate that term with the weak nobles who gave in to the popular revolutions. Those men are bad too because they show the weakness, the craven, the cowardly spirit of the plebeians, right? Even if they are of high birth and therefore they sort of forsake the tenets and the duties of their domestic deities in order to lie and become more like the plebs. And so they cease to be good men. Accordingly, Theogenes writes, quote, the good men, Cyrnus, have never destroyed a city. The bad men rejoice in committing outrages. They also destroy the people and use justice in favor of those who act unjustly, end quote. Further down, Theogenes continues, quote, from this arise seditions and the slaughter of men, end quote. Uh, that's all to be expected, I suppose, because as Theogenes explains in another set of verses, quote, it is natural for the bad man to consider justice as wicked, as he has no respect whatsoever for an eventual divine punishment, end quote. And so in commentary to all this, or as commentary to all this, Nietzsche writes, quote, with these last words, the poet expresses that plebeians, not constrained by any religion, are not afraid of the gods. We should recall at this point an opinion common in Theogenes' times, or more precisely, one that was transmitted from the most ancient times of the Greeks to the epoch of Theogenes, that reveals how much dignity the nobles attributed to themselves. They believed that the gods entered into a formal agreement with men, by which it was determined that if the gods received from men honors and ritual sacrifices, they would be obliged to grant them goods and benefits." End quote. And so, you know, again, from all the research I did, I cannot conclude that Nietzsche ever read De Coulange, but it seems their conclusions are very similar. They both see the origin of the aristocratic belief in their book. It finds its origin in this belief of their direct connection with the gods as intercessors, and that this springs from a much, much earlier time in Greek history, which was not even fully understood in its origins by those of Theogenes' time, that, in fact, the basis of their connection with the divine were beliefs that far predated the current ones and which existed layered beneath a series of other newer beliefs as the polytheistic cults of Greece expanded and syncretized with one another. In any case, this overturning of the old social situation um, led Theogenes to begin to reverse some of his older ideas contained in earlier verses. In his earlier verses, he praises the justice of the gods as necessarily placing the wealth within the hands of the good men and you know, consigning the bad common people to poverty. The, the aristocrats maintained the pact of the gods, after all, as they made the proper offerings according to the correct rites, they therefore were given prosperity, and that meant the current social arrangement was, in the strict sense, just to them, right? Um, and there, and accordingly, the commoners are treated with wrath, right? <laughs> but towards the end of his life, after returning to Megara from exile, Theogenes seems to have altered those beliefs somewhat. Uh, Nietzsche, for his part, says that Theogenes could not help but begin to doubt the justice of the gods. Theogenes writes, quote, Dear Zeus, you amaze me. 
You certainly rule over all things, because honor and supreme power are yours. How then, son of Kronos, does your mind dare to hold the guilty and the just man in the same esteem? End quote. Poverty is always treated by Theogenes as perhaps one of the worst states to live in, but it's because he alleges that one who is poor is made worse. They're made base by, pro- by poverty, right? They're made common, such that those of a noble birth who are taken out of a life of leisure and made to live in privation become less noble in their character. And so he writes, quote, Wretched poverty, against my desire, you teach me perforce much that is shameful, end quote. And in another set of verses, quote, For it is necessary to search upon the earth as well as on the wide surface of the sea to find rescue, Cernus, from painful poverty, end quote. Um, and so now the plebs have had a taste of wealth, making them greedy for it. But meanwhile, the patricians have had a taste of poverty, meaning they're no longer the purely aristocratic souls that they used to be. Now they have to contend with want and jealousy and resentment, meaning that they are less than what they were. Furthermore, it must be stressed that Theogenes understands that the old social order was premised in some sense on the nobility as this sort of intercessor between man and God, as those who maintain the offerings and the sacrifices. Um, because Theogenes, by all indications, actually believed in this old religion, we cannot say, therefore, that this observation of the aristocracy is requ- requiring this religious prestige in order to hold sway over the minds of the common people. We, we can't say that this is disingenuous or Machiavellian in the common usage of the term. But nevertheless, we should note that writers like Fustel de Collange, millennia later, are merely echoing Theogenes when they show how the social order of the Greeks was rooted in religious conviction. So it's during this period that Theogenes begins to entertain the idea that therefore, perhaps everyone is somewhat guilty from the divine perspective, that we are all wayward from the gods' demands of character and virtue, and everyone is touched by criminality to some extent, This is the only way that Theogenes can rationalize what has happened, um, make sense of the good man's social position becoming reversed with that of the bad men, right? Because the nobility, in abdicating their role as intercessors between man and God, in some sense now deserve it. Um, But the fact that they were able, the fact that they had it in them to uh, behave in a cowardly manner, in a dishonest manner. Um, shows that they they were not you know noble in their soul, or as Plato would would later write, and we'll talk about uh, Plato next week. Uh, you know, he speaks of the the this is his famous noble lie, right? That in their ideal republic, they will teach the uh, raised aristocratic class in that society to believe that they have true gold within themselves, within their own soul, right? Well, just to, eat, to steal Plato's metaphor, Theogenes is. Uh, sort of perceiving that the nobility didn't have that true gold in their soul, that they had just as much of a, you know, um, flawed, faulty sort of inner makeup as anyone else. And so anyway, he writes, quote, None of the men on earth is born free of guilt. Of the men the sun looks down upon, there is no man entirely good and moderate, end quote. And so we can perceive a shift in Theogenes, 
near the end of his life, uh, owing to the experiences that he lived through. The stark difference between the values he was born into and the situation of Megara by the time Theogenes uh, had lived to be an old man. Nietzsche writes, quote, It is quite possible that, once Theogenes returned to his motherland, almost nearing the end of his life, he not only exercised more moderation in public affairs, but also distanced himself from some of his previous convictions about gods and men, and expressed himself a bit more liberally, above all concerning the dignity of plebeian man. He now exhorts Cyrnus not to reproach anyone for the opprobrium of poverty. Verses 155 through 158 reads, quote, Therefore, even if it causes you displeasure, never reproach a man on account of his poverty, nor throw on him his wretched poverty. For truly, Zeus does tilt the scales either to one side or another, at one time to be rich and at another to have nothing. End quote. Now, little to nothing is known about Theogenes's death, but it seems rather obvious that he likely died of old age. Um, you know, as Nietzsche has it, he would have been around 90 years old, after all. And so Nietzsche thus completes his sketch of the life of Theogenes and the shifts in his perspective revealed in verses from various points in his life. You know, to, to, just to recap briefly, in his early days, Theogenes writes of enjoying his youth while living a life of leisure. Here, as throughout his life, he wrote jovial drinking songs, and, and, as well as poems of religious devotion to the gods, but overall his tone is happy and natural, except as the social unrest then begins to start, then he fears the pain he will endure in old age, once pushed into poverty. He grows up in a state of luxury that he was taught was the preserve of the aristocracy and educated into the noble virtue ethic. But during the tyranny of Theagenes, the prestige and standing of the aristocracy is irreparably damaged. Then comes the oclocracy, in which Theogenes initially attempted to flatter the popular party, but he nevertheless is known to be a lover of the oligarchs and his property is taken from him anyway. He complains that like a stray dog, he must now drift from place to place and live in the most contemptible of circumstances. Uh, poverty, which makes the, one's character just worse in every way. And then he returns years later, and uh, the social structure has changed. Men who he sees as contemptible are now honored. Those who knew nothing of the sacred rites are now holding public office. Families with a religion intermarry with those who have none. And the justice of the gods no longer makes sense to him <laughs> in the same way as a framework for understanding uh, you know, the various fates of mankind. Instead, it appears that the gods are fickle. Thus, we can look at one of the most famous or infamous verses of Theogenes, which I remember I first, it was one of the first ones I read by him. It encapsulates perfectly his aristocratic attitude and his reactionary stance against change and against the changes that it took place within his very long life. But, um, with everything we sort of looked at, uh, the I think this quotation will uh, be very enlightening for everyone. This is verses 53 through 60. Quote, Cyrnus, this city is certainly still a city, but its people are different. Those men who previously knew neither judgments nor laws, but wore goatskins on their sides and spread outside the city like deer, they are now the good son of Polypiades, and those formerly noble are now base. Can anyone endure this sight? 
end quote. And so everything is turned upside down. Theogenes believed in a set social hierarchy according to his religious convictions, and now it is inverted, and he believes this will lead to the death of the city. And, uh, you know, from his perspective, that would be inevitable because you have bad men, as we talked about, kakus people, uh, cowardly men. They're now called good, and all the best people who might have saved the city are now denigrated and cast out. And so a question naturally arises here that I think many of you will have already been asking yourselves. Is Theogenes not resentful? Is his hatred toward the common people, as Nietzsche described it, a rebellion against reality? You know, once upon a time, the social structure based on Theogenes' moral values actually existed, but after that, social reality dissolves. Does Theogenes' morality also become a condemnation of reality by, by that very reversal? And perhaps more to the point, let's consider the question just as a matter of psychological truth, right? Or the psychological reality, regardless of how we want to philosophically understand the morality of Theogenes. Um, is it simply a fact that Theogenes' condemnation of society and his attacks on the changes that had happened are expressions of resentment? By being deprived of his power and finding himself disrespected and dishonored, in spite of the fact that he had once felt respect and honor owed to him as a very condition of his birth and inheritance, right? I mean, surely that's a textbook case as to how resentment is generated. Which is to say, you know, when one has power imposed upon them, against which they are powerless, and they then go on to imagine a revenge against the, against that source of power that they cannot oppose in physical space, right? And then they go on to condemn the real state of affairs, which has been imposed upon them, uh, they condemn it in a moral sense and say that should not have happened, right? And do we not see evidence of slave morality in the new moral valuations that Theogenes comes to, i.e. the claim that all men are guilty and that fortune is fickle and that no man should be judged according to his station in life? I mean, all it took was being dispossessed of wealth and power and suddenly Theogenes Sounds almost like a Christian speaking of man's universal wickedness and saying in so many words that the race does not always go to the swift nor the battle to the strong, right? So I think if you're asking these questions, you're very much onto something. And while I think Nietzsche might have argued, you know, the noble culture war to reestablish the old hierarchies was more in keeping with the necessities of life and nature and thus inherently less resentful than slave morality or so on and so forth. I can see the arguments you could make. But there's also, it must be said, an undertone of critique that Nietzsche has in his writings on Theogenes, even in his dissertation, long before Nietzsche's theory concerning resentment was even formulated. He hints at it at the very end of the dissertation where he writes the following paragraph, quote, I believe that Theogenes has taught me one thing, since his life coincided with the transmutation of all things and opinions, it could not be possible for him to retain the same convictions with which he seemed to have been raised as a child. Hence, it is plain what Grote meant, that we should really agree that the Dorian vigor in its genuine nature was already in those days discernibly weakened and exhausted with theogenous. And so... As for the sentiment of Grote that Nietzsche references, 
Grote wrote, and I quote here in an abridged form, Still less can we discover in the verses of Theogenes that strength and peculiarity of pure Dorian feeling, which has been the fashion to look for so extensively, end quote. It's notable that Nietzsche concludes his dissertation with those words, you know, because it, I think it reveals that he doesn't consider Theogenes a paragon by any means. In fact, Theogenes is, his life story is one of being sort of poisoned by his circumstances and changed by the social transformation along with everyone else. He is the aristocratic sp spirit, right? But already in like a weakened, dying, old form. And in this old age, he displays the effect that this has had on him. In Nietzsche's implicit criticism of Theogenes at the end, we might perhaps see all the more the danger of resentment as a psychological poison. Theogenes not only writes in his work contemptuously of how the nobility was transformed, but he himself, whether he was aware of this or not, is one among those nobles who was transformed and made into a decadent, we might say. And thus, if Nietzsche is to be compared to Theogenes, then we must see some resemblance in Nietzsche's own admission that he himself was a decadent, but one who chose to rally his intellect to fight against decadence, that that was the main difference between him and the others, right? And so we can see many parallels between the two men, um, you know, that the correspondence between the democratic revolutions of the Greek polis and the French Revolution and the socialistic movements that followed in the 1800s, right? Which were attacking the old religious convictions of Europe and threatened an old aristocratic order. Europe in Nietzsche's time now seemed inexorably speeding towards a course of democratization. And perhaps Nietzsche saw himself as occupying a similar place in history as Theogenes. Just as Theogenes leaves behind an expression of the old noble morality in his verses to Cyrnus attempting to raise a new generation to wage a cultural war against democracy, Nietzsche has the same goal with his own philosophy as he writes to the philosophers of the future. And yet we must conclude that at the end of his essay, Nietzsche displays an awareness of how Theogenes himself had been degenerated by the events of his life. And I think he must have seen how those criticisms could have been applied to Nietzsche himself should he choose to emulate Theogenes. We haven't spent so much time discussing Nietzsche's main philological project um, that he undertakes in this dissertation, but I did mention it at the beginning that Nietzsche sets out to disprove that these were gnomic poems. Um, but we should mention that if you do read this dissertation, you'll see that Nietzsche spends a fair amount of time establishing that ancient authors considered Theogenes as a gnomic poet interpreting his project as a series of moral teachings, and even suggesting that maybe even Cyrnus was not a real person, but an, you know, an imagined pupil meant to stand in for the audience. Without going into detail in the interest of time, Nietzsche illustrates that, um, well, that the ancient scholars did write of Theogenes this way, as an old moralist and a teacher of morals, and that in fact, um, today, if you go to the Wikipedia page, this opinion of Theogenes is still on display in the opening paragraph where the Wikipedia editors say that Theogenes wrote gnomic poems. But 
Nietzsche demonstrates that, in fact, Theogenes never collected his poems under the title of being moral instructions, and that they included many different types of poetry appropriate to different aspects of life, including, as we mentioned, convivial poems and drinking songs. Nietzsche writes, quote, Theognidean elegiac poetry was somehow born within these aristocratic circles. After guests are satisfied with food, they pour wine into their cups, offer a libation to the gods, and direct their prayers and songs, especially to Apollo. This is followed by that part of the feast called komos, wholly devoted to musical performance and cheerful banter. Some table companions made it a practice to sing elegiac poems to the rhythm of the flute, among which almost all of the Theognidean elegies should be placed. It seems that Theognis, so to speak, selected the subjects of such poems, which could be classified in various and diverse classes, from common events of life and especially from banquet scenes, as these were supposedly the best way they could stimulate the sensations and feelings of guests. And indeed, Theogenes banters, either gently or with refinement with his friends, as when he invites them to banquets and drinking parties. End quote. And from there, Nietzsche lists all the Theogenidean poems, which are tributes or paeans to gods and goddesses, including verses dedicated to Apollo, to Diana, to the Muses and Graces, to Jupiter, to Castor and Pollux. Nietzsche then writes, uh, further down in the essay, that contests occurred between table companions. That's the famous touchstone or test of the symposia, the competition between the good men of the city in their attempts to outdo one another in conversation or in riddles or in singing or whatever the case may be. Nietzsche says the genre of table songs and riddles was, quote, very common at banquets, which is also documented in Theognis in the following verses. Quote, the most beautiful is most just, and best is health, and the most pleasant thing is to obtain what you love. End quote. In addition to these, we find poems in which Theognis charmingly recommends the use of wine and praises the enjoyment of one's youth as a worthy thing and that when one is young, it's right and good they should pursue the youthful passions such as sexual encounters, adventure, pleasures of the flesh, physical competition, and so on. In some lines, he recounts his romance with a girl of high birth whose parents wished her to pursue a rich plebeian, but she liked Theognis in spite of the fact that he was poor during this time in his life. He writes, quote, There, embracing the girl with my arms, I kissed her neck, and a soft whisper came out of her lips. End quote. And so what we find in Theogenes' canon of work is really, it's like an expression of the feelings at all seasons of one's life, right? These are poems of a man of feeling. That, and that's how Nietzsche thought of the aristocrats of ancient Greece. And, and that conception is probably influenced a great deal by this study of Theogenes here, but... Importantly, though, it's, it's difficult to see how many of these poems that we find in his canon could be classified as gnomic or as morally instructive, the way some of the verses addressed to Cyrenus may seem to be to modern ears. The reason I wanted to return to this point is that it illustrates the gulf Nietzsche saw between the aristocratic sensibilities 
and the post-Socratic view of life, which we are more sympathetic to within the Alexandrian age that we're all living in. That this is not a moralistic expression or, or an attempt to impart some universal ethos for human behavior. This is the work of a passionate, expressive man of a certain time and place. It's Theogenes's confession, his laying bare of his inner states. And, you know, and not all of them are laudable or morally praiseworthy or reflect uh, even Theogenes himself in the best light, right? This is coming from a man of a social class that pre-Socrates still lived in that world of myth and ritual and their, with their prejudices unexamined, right? The class who maintained the libations and the funereal repasts and paid respect to the gods, um, but also saw no impiety in writing poems about the joy of lovemaking and drinking. Nietzsche writes also, quote, I know of no ancient poet to have written more subtly on the influence of music, end quote. So Theogenes understands the power of music uh, or of, of poetry at that time, which was an inherently a musical thing, and the power that music has over the affects, like, right, the passions. And yet, unlike Socrates or Plato, he doesn't oppose poetry for this danger, but he practices it himself. And so the Theogenes that we get in popular scholarship, according to Nietzsche, is a sort of a warped figure, a distortion that doesn't allow us to see the true perspective of Theogenes because it's colored by our modern Alexandrian morality, or more broadly speaking, by like our slave moralistic perspective. For some concluding thoughts, uh, let's look now at this fragment, fragment I mentioned before called The Studies on Theogenes where Nietzsche draws out some of the philosophical implications uh, of the work that he did in his dissertation. You know, he effectively summarizes the insights he gleaned while doing his research on Theogenes of Megara. Nietzsche writes in this fragment, quote, One should establish that these poems, as outpourings of the soul, were not of an exclusive nature. They were representations of an agitated inner life written in times of distress, of political turmoil, of seafaring, of wandering around, of homecoming, of love and friendship. They were never written with a single-sided aim to teach, but to relieve the soul. Among them one finds pure moral scolia, but no elegies, a difference that one should not exclude from consideration. Then there are such songs as those generally brought out by a symposium, drinking songs, appeals to the gods, and so on. The old aristocracy could not maintain itself beyond the Persian wars, the transfer of wealth unto men of the people, and the universal spreading of knowledge and art ruined a nobility of blood. With this, Theogenes's elegies lost the needed context which would have allowed them to be understood. The commoners approached them with different conceptions. One would now find ethical principles, when before one would find everything noble. References to sympathetic communities were no longer un understood. Theogenes himself was no longer known. End quote. So I think that's a wonderful summary of, first, what these poems actually are, which is a reflection of the agitated inner life of a passionate man who endured hardship and saw his moral values overturned and destroyed. And second, uh, why, the, why that the incorrect interpretation of the poems prevailed, right? Because the needed context for understanding the poems was lost. 
The only thing that could be understood by the Alexandrian culture that inherited Theogenes's work was uh, as a moral teaching, as we've mentioned. And so Nietzsche in this fragment goes on to explain how, as successive generations took Theogenes simply as a teacher of morality in the form of, you know, gnomic poetry, his broader canon fell out of favor. Why? Well, because Theogenes became taught in school books of the ancient world. And school books are always eventually degraded in their value because who wants to return to reading the books of instruction they were forced to read in school? As the ancient writer Isocrates writes, Theogenes is highly reputed, but is read reluctantly because human beings dislike receiving advice. Nietzsche cites this assessment of Theogenes' importance among the peoples of antiquity as being highly explanatory. Theogenes was thus exploited. Nietzsche writes, quote, The Socratic school use of the book sealed it as a school book. The gnomes were extracted and the children had to learn them by heart. This is not reported specifically with regard to Theogenes, but is surely to be inferred from a text by Aeschines, Contra Seistefontum. Quote, I know that we as children learned the gnomes of the poet by heart so that we could use them as grown-up men. End quote. That Theogenes was among the first to have this fate allows us well to suspect his pedagogical exploitability. This fact has two different consequences. One, the whole elegies gradually disappeared, and the excerpts, at first many-sided and numerous, became ultimately consistent. And two, the aversion toward Theogenes on the part of the public increased, as indeed schoolbooks in general are frequently and undeservedly destined to decline in appreciation. End quote. And so, in the final paragraph of this essay, Nietzsche ties together all the many threads of analysis we've sort of examined considering Theogenes's life and work, and the Nietzschean interpretation thereof. Quote, This is how Theogenes reached completion, and is how we have him today. Theogenes appears as a sophisticated and run-down grand feudal lord, or junker, with feudal passions, loved in his own epoch, full of mortal hatred against an aspiring people, tossed about by a sad fate that grinded him down and made him milder in many ways. He comes into view as a characterization of that bright, somewhat corrupted, and no longer firmly established nobility of blood at the crossing between an ancient and a new time, a contorted Yanis head, because for him the past appeared so beautiful and enviable set against a future in and for itself of equal entitlements, loathsome and repugnant. Theogenes appears as a characteristic mind of all those noble figures that represent an aristocracy on the eve of a popular revolution that threatens their privileges forever and makes them fight and wrestle with the same passion for their own caste and their own existence. End quote. And so there we have it. That's the story of Theogenes of Megara, and of Nietzsche's scholarship on him. He is a self-contained tale of a revaluation of values, as it happened in the ancient world. He's a microcosmic representation within one individual of what happened in Greek society. He stood at the crossroads looking in both directions, like the two-faced god, Janus. His gaze turned both with horror to the future, which seems inevitable, and with a longing to the beautiful past, which was fading. 
And there's a sort of double entendre to talk about him with the contorted Yanis head because Nietzsche talks about how he became outwardly milder in many ways, often advising Cyrnus not to outwardly express hatred or enmity with the uh, the bad men, the plebeians who were now becoming rich and influential. And yet the hatred he nursed within him became more and more intense. His determination to wage a culture war against democracy, the thing that had brought down his old social system based on his own moral values, that became more intense. So he has this mortal hatred written on his interface, so to speak, but his external expression is one of mildness. And Nietzsche, therefore, seems to understand the bitterness within Theogenes and um, his hatred of all the cowardly and dissolute among the ranks of the nobility, that perhaps we can say Theogenes was resentful and began to entertain beliefs of the moral guilt of all to explain the downfall of his beloved social order, for he is himself changed by the revolution that has taken place. And... So we can see where both the ideas of Theogenes, which are found in his poetic verses, and the story of his life serve Nietzsche and direct his future project. In Theogenes's life, Nietzsche sees a man devout to his principles, even against all practical considerations, and unable to fully or effectively become an untrue person who betrays those principles but he's a poet rather than a philosopher. He's a man who lays bare his passions to the world and desires to subtly use those passions to stir things in others in order to fight this cultural war. Theogenes' ideas, on the other hand, Nietzsche perceives this notion of an innate and implicit division between men, between noble and common, between the good men and the bad men, and finally as a representation of the Dorian ethos, Theogenes shows us the Apollinean revealed many years before Nietzsche's formal uh, examination of this idea and birth of tragedy, the art of the nobility as the shining, beautiful representation or image of this life, right? Apollo, the dream god and soothsayer god, imbues us with this religious reverence for the divine, and as archer god aims from a distance, shows us the contemplative, sober mind, one that is kept apart from and above the masses, the common people, right? And so, in short, while one may find the same aristocratic sentiments of the ancient Hellenes represented in some form or another in Homer or Thucydides or Sophocles, they're revealed with the greatest clarity in sheer stark relief in Theogenes. When Nietzsche is speaking of the aristocratic temperament, he's speaking of the early Theogenes. When he writes of the Apollonian pathos of distance, he finds it also in Theogenes. The Greek notions of good and bad that form up the basis of the master morality. It's right here in Theogenes. And even the psychological force of resentment, which changes and indeed worsens even the noblest soul, as Nietzsche would later argue. That too is revealed here in the story of Theogenes. That's all for this week. Signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.